Hey, everybody. Uh, so this is just Katie this week. No Ben. Um, but I am here with a special guest. Uh, I brought on the show Zach Drake, who is a uh, specialist in crime statistics and methodology, a PhD student at George Mason University, who reached out after last week's episode about the overlap of data science and criminology. Because uh, I'm not an expert, but he's literally almost a PhD in this, um, and very generously volunteered to come on the show. So he is here with me today. Hi, Zach. Hi, Katie. I'm really excited to have you and have a, a deeper methodological discussion about how data is being used and maybe occasionally abused in understanding crime and and all kinds of associated criminal justice issues. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So Zach would love to start with just a quick introduction to you. I gave a, a little bit of a blurb, but would love to hear you tell a little bit about your background and what you study. Yeah, so I am a PhD student at George Mason, like you mentioned, um, focusing in criminology. Um, my areas of interest and specialization are around uh, spatial criminology, crime in place, uh, methodologies, crime statistics, crime analysis. Um, those are my kind of academic interests. And then I, I lecture on similar topics as well as some crime prevention and crime policy issues at both George Mason University as well as American University. Um, but by, by day, I am a, a working data scientist at a, a firm called Thomson Reuters Special Services. Um, and we work on helping criminal justice agencies and law enforcement agencies bring better data science into, into their operations. So one of the things that you mentioned, speaking about your area of expertise, you said crime in space. Did I hear that correctly? Crime and place. And place. Yeah. So yeah. what is the, can you unpack that a little bit more? Like what, why is that the way that you, what, what does that mean to a non-expert? Yeah. So, you know, traditionally when people think of criminology or crime or criminal justice, there's a very person focused aspect where we have kind of the the person who committed the crime and then maybe the police officer who responds to the crime uh, and then maybe the prosecutor who prosecutes the crime and it's all people aspect and from that you might extrapolate you know things about the system we might get into like the psychology of offenders and trying to explain why they committed the crime and over the course of decades of people studying criminology the reality is, is that view of trying to explain why people commit crimes has not been overly fruitful. We still don't know quite a bit about why people commit crimes. And every time something's tested, it explains very little of why you know, crime rates change, why some people commit crimes and others. And, and that's a big issue. Crime in place is a very small, still very small subset of criminology that instead of focusing on people, we're focusing on specific places. Uh, so instead of you know, looking at why did this person commit a robbery here? We're saying, why did the robbery happen here and not there? What about this particular location allowed this robbery to happen? Did this particular location entice this person to commit a robbery? Did they seek this location out? What are the nuances there? And it's, it's also taking the idea of instead of looking at crime rates in bigger geographic areas, of shrinking that down to smaller units of analysis so we can see variability in, in crime rates. So instead of looking at an entire neighborhood and saying, how many murders did we have in this neighborhood last year? 
looking at, at down to the block or the address or the streets and you can see variability and crime happens here but not here and here but not here and then trying to think about why that is so that there are a couple of things you said there that are really interesting to me the first was uh you know more traditional view traditional way of studying this is fundamental unit of analysis is kind of like the person you think of it as a, a geographical area and in particular maybe a very small geographical area and that it sounds like in some cases that works better in some ways. I'm really curious from a methodological perspective how you as a person who's studying this look at the data that's coming out of that person-centric view and arrive at the conclusion, you or the people who write the papers that you read maybe, like r- arrive at the conclusion that like the person-centric view has these shortcomings, like this isn't giving us everything that we want out of it in terms of like explaining criminology and then conversely when you're doing like the the spatial uh centric view of criminology like how do you validate that it's like i'm air quoting here uh working air quoting on podcasts is is fantastic yeah it's uh it works really well (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um you know one of the the main ways you can see the person-centric view not that it falls apart, but just it doesn't give us all of the explanatory is actually in the R squared of a lot of the regression models that are made is that it, we just can't explain all of the variability in crime, whether that's, you know, looking at why if we do a, a study with groups of 100 versus 100, why did these 100 commit crimes at higher rates? And we try and build some kind of linear model to predict those features. And we just don't end up with these these R squareds in like the 0. 0.8, 0. 0.9 realm like we would want to see and say, boom, we got it. We see them in like the, the point as low as 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3, maybe up into the 0. 0.6 realm. So that's one metric of, of those models struggle when we try and look at the person level. And it's also when we try and analyze criminal justice policies and programs that focus on the person level. We see you know very low variability explained in a lot of these models and these attempts to explain it. Uh, Part of that could just be the fact that it's so complicated, we can't possibly measure every variable that goes into this model. So all of that stuff is getting thrown into the error term on a regression model, and then that's making our actual model not able to predict all the variability. In the the place-centric focused, you can take all of this data from police departments or, or you know courts, and you can map where these crimes occurred And then you can bring in spatial features from the city of what types of places are there, what types of roads is it near, uh, are there traffic patterns that are unique to that area, and look at uniquely spatial variables that you would never capture when you're looking at the person level. And then you can use those to try and build models that explain crime. And we find not only do we get higher explainability of crime rates as far as explain the variation, but it also unveils new patterns in crime that aren't relevant or aren't necessarily prevalent in the person level. Yeah, that makes sense. And one thing I'm curious then as a follow-up is I know a lot of times when you're running regressions, it's not just, can we build a reasonably good fit here and convince ourselves that we've captured a lot of the variance, but then there's like the follow-up step, the inference where you're reading from the coefficients of the model, like what are the things that seem to really matter in in building this model and and oftentimes what doesn't matter. So do you find that then when you're doing a similar interpretation of a spatial model that it's pointing you toward interesting new interpretations of new causal mechanisms or new ideas about, inferential ideas about what's 
causing crime? Understanding that's a super complicated question, but I imagine that you get some new you get some new hypotheses that come out of spatial models that aren't, obviously aren't going to come out of the person level models. Yeah, causal is still a very hard thing, right? To be to be able to link, you know, oh, this is causing more crime, very difficult. Uh, but you do find things that are new correlates with crime. So things particular to specific street segments that might be, you know, the the availability of more public transit or the deterioration of like street lighting or the deterioration of the building qualities. Um, things like, you know, more just like general disorder that's not criminal at all, but then, you know, maybe leads to more crime on the street as well. There's a lot of things that are just so specific to a place that without measuring at the place, you're never going to see them. But that doesn't mean that we're finding new causal relationships. It's like we're finding new correlates, and these correlates tend to explain the variation better. But that is, we're not quite at the level where we can say, like, oh, this is a causal factor, is that you see this on a street and it's going to cause more crime. That's fair. And again, we're probably not measuring. There's thousands of variables we could throw into one of these models, and, and you know, then we would need thousands of obser- observations to reach the degrees of freedom we need to run that. And, and we're just not measuring at those kind of levels, levels to capture all that. That makes sense. Yeah. I, so in cases where we have... In, or you all in criminology have been able to try to tease apart some of those causal relationships? Like, what are the kinds of data conditions that you need to be able to answer those questions? Yeah, so some studies have been sending people to observe locations, and then you run into inter-rater reliability issues, where if I send a team of researchers out, just because you go to a street and you say, yeah, you know, the, the windows on this street are falling apart doesn't mean that I would consider them falling apart. All right? And so you run into issues there that's subjective for sure. Um, but, you know, as far as getting back to what I think you were asking there, as far as asking, rephrase your question for me. I kind of lost my thought there. That's Unless, okay. The gist of the question, as I, as I mean to ask it, is basically like, what is required... Um, in terms of the data attributes that you need to do uh, causal inference. And a little bit of the subtext of the question is like, are we ever going to be able to do really convincing causal inference here? Yeah, I mean, so causal inference, I, I'm a little skeptical when it comes to, to any of this stuff that we can get silver bullet causals. I think we're going to be looking at correlates for the foreseeable future. One thing that I think is interesting is as things like Google Maps or, you know, companies like Esri are tracking more and more features at the spatial level. Uh, We're building the ability to throw in more and more variables, but without getting down to like the science of moving dots where you're literally looking at who moves to the exact foot where um, and, and at what time, getting those relationships of this person moved here and then this was a factor when they were at that place and then this was a factor without you know building a, a state of data collection that i don't think any of us would be comfortable with i don't see us ever getting to the point where we could measure that precisely um but i might be a skeptic in that there might be people who disagree with it yeah no that's fair and you know part of the reason a little bit of what i was thinking when i asked the question is as i was reading some of the um you sent over a few articles before this to prime the conversation a little bit as an aside we will put those all on lineardigressions.com uh they're really good reading for folks who are interested in digging into this more. Um, so they, they skewed generally a little bit more towards the person-centric than the spatial-centric, but one of them was talking about what amounted to a randomized controlled trial that had been done at some point in the past. They took 
groups of what you might call like at-risk youths. And some of them they randomly assigned to have extra tutoring, social support. They sent them to summer camp and then the rest were in the control group and compared outcomes after uh, some period of time. And so that's, that's an example of what I would think of as a, you know, a way to do a randomized control, like causal study. Like if we provide extra social resources for people, like does that actually cause better outcomes? But you know, the next paragraph, they're talking about all of the, (laughs) all of the confounders, and they came up with some counterintuitive results. And they were like, oh, well, maybe there's other stuff that's, that's going on here, like network effects amongst the kids when they go to summer camp, and then they, you know, maybe are are spreading malfeasance amongst the, the, um, the treatment group and all these kinds of things. So I, I guess the thing that I thought was funny is that even, even in situations where we're trying our darndest to really set up experimental conditions to try to understand causal effects of some of these important levers, it, it's anywhere from uh, ambiguous to impossible to really say what's working and what's not. Yeah, and there have been, there's one really kind of famous uh, experimental trial at the place level where they were focused on drug markets in Jersey City and they were focused on policing those drug markets and focusing police attention just to those spaces and those places where they they knew that drug activity was happening as opposed to just randomly patrolling and trying to find drugs they came uh, and that's an, like then we're testing policy we're not testing the causal factors of crime though we're testing like what works to address this but that doesn't tell us anything about like why was there crime at these locations why were these the locations the drug markets focused on to begin with um, and without randomly assigning Actually, I don't even know how you would randomly assign drug dealers to drug places. Like, I, 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 those yeah, I don't, I don't know. think we can actually, not even from like an ethical standpoint, I don't think we can actually like logistically even do that or pull that off. So, well, and there's an interesting thing that you hinted at in your answer there that I'd love to hear you expand upon more, which is, you know, it's one thing to understand the causal mechanisms of crime. It's a different thing to understand what kinds of policies and interventions bring down crime rates. Uh, I think we're probably all in agreement that lower crime is in general uh, where we want to be. And so what you kind of said there that I thought was interesting and seemed to be supported by some of these articles is that, you know, we can perhaps make meaningful progress on some of the policy questions without having full clarity on what causes crime in the first place, which I think is interesting. Yeah. And that's an interesting, like, what's more important question Right? Is, 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 is it more important that we improve the justice system to make it fair, more efficient, and more successful? Or is it more important for us to understand why it does what it does? Because it, it, it's, would we rather invest this time to make policing work and make it work better and make it work more fair? Or are we really going to be hung up in understanding why it did? And it, it's one of those kind of different people will give you different different answers that might be more of a normative question within the field than like a scientific question of of where we should go but yeah from like a from an efficiency standpoint if we're just trying to lower crime rates does i don't really care why this person killed all these people we just want to make it to where they don't kill again or where these murders similar murders can't happen again that's what's really more important we just want people to stop dying and in that situation explaining why this person did it may uh, maybe from a forensic standpoint might be helpful for more of an investigative tool but from a generalizable explainability tool may not be that helpful or really that needed 
Interesting. So another thing, the reason that we're kind of talking in the first place here is that this is a national conversation that we're all having right now. And I'm curious your take as a, as a person who knows much more about this than the average person, but you know, every average person is right now trying to have this conversation. Some of them, some of them in very public forums, right? You know, people are like going on TV and talking about what they think or whatever. I'm curious about whether you've generally found yourself impressed by this conversation that you think uh, you're actually heartened by uh, some of the things that you hear folks saying, if it's a mixed bag, and if there are any particular misconceptions that maybe folks are saying, perhaps with a lot of confidence, but you as an expert are kind of sitting there being like, no, 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 that's, I know you think that's how that works. That's not how that works. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of, of, the thing about some of these misconceptions is that they're not inaccurate. Like they're technically, yes, that is accurate, but that's not the right context or that's not the whole story. Um, Unfortunately, this issue has become politicized. And whenever you see that, you see the sides of the political sphere use the the tools, which in this case might be data or statistics to their favor. Um, And and the truth usually lies somewhere in in between. Uh, so I guess one, a great one to, to kick this off, uh, of this conversation is the famous kind of quote that's going around right now of the more anti-protest folks of saying, oh, well, the police kill more white people than black people and saying, using that for, to try and diminish the tone of, you know, racial inequalities in police use of force. But it doesn't take very long for someone trained in statistics to very quickly say, you can't just look at raw numbers, break it up by the percentage of population, right? And when you do that, black people are about 13% of our population in the United States, but they're over a third of the police killings in the United States. That's the problem there. And so you see those kind of misuse of statistics where we have, uh, okay, yes, technically what you're saying is true, the police do kill more white people, but there's significantly more white people in the United States than black people. So if it was being done fairly, you would expect there to be more white killings. Uh, and, and that's 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 one side on the more anti-protester side. Um, there's also kind of a, a misconception around, I think a lot of people don't realize we don't really know much about police killings because there's really no real official data on it. The federal government didn't start tracking it till 2017. So, and even then that's voluntary reporting because the federal government cannot require local governments to report these things. Uh, and definitely isn't going to spend the resources to vet the reporting to make sure it's even accurate to begin with. So we're relying on people like the Washington post and some activist groups who have done some really good thorough journalistic approaches to gathering this information and creating estimates and databases of these incidents. But it's definitely not all of the shootings that that police are involved with and all of the killings that that police are involved with for sure. And a lot of people misconceive that the vast majority of police interactions do not result in violence. The police have roughly 370 or so million interactions with people in the United States and they kill about 1200 people. So overall, most interactions are going to go well. Now, counter to that, though, again, another misconception that's thrown out is if you were to sum all homicides in the United States in a year together, 
the estimated about 1,200 or so police killings combined with the civilian killings and homicides that are usually charged as crimes, the police killings make up anywhere between 15 to 20% of all homicides in the United States for a given year. So then you come back to the idea, well, if we as a government or as a, as a law enforcement agency have somewhat of a control over reducing 15 to 20% of the homicides, that's a worthwhile endeavor. So I, I go back and forth between these different sides of this because in reality, all the sides being pitched around this issue are missing key nuances uh, because they're overstating or taking certain numbers out of context. One of the things that I've started to hear more about in the last week or so is folks have turned their eyes somewhat more to policy. Sound to me like they could result in better data, perhaps getting collected around this. Like um, the one that I'm thinking of specifically is uh, New York City, it sounds like is on its way toward making um, police complaints public in a way that they hadn't been before. I imagine that there's uh, probably a number of other initiatives that are similar. So I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, I don't know how closely you've been following this part of the conversation, but um, if you have, I would love to hear your thoughts on um, the whether that data you are optimistic that it would help give a more comprehensive picture about what's even going on and helping us reliably measure this sort of stuff. Yeah, more data is always better than less data. I would always rather us collect more and then we decide what to do with it later. Um, one of the things that I think that conversation naturally leads to is data that is in an analyzable state because it doesn't do us a whole lot of good for us to be just filing away, like doing PDF scans of police reports and then putting them up on the internet. That doesn't create the ability for us to turn this into a scientifically driven problem-solving approach. Uh, so it's, it's not enough just to say, oh, well, we need to make the data public. That's great. But we also need to invest the time and resources into making those data systems well-designed. Uh, having good data engineers and database administrators build these things out in ways that even myself as a, as a data scientist probably could not do very well. Like that, That's a very special skill to build those out. Uh, and then making those publicly available. And I think that's the, the extra step that doesn't really get invested in when we, when we talk about conversations like this is very quickly people will say, oh, okay, well, it's all public. Technically, all government data is public. If you're willing to submit a FOIA request and wait, you know, however many years it takes for, for that data to come back, and then you get a bunch of PDFs you got to sort through. Um, so I think that's, that's one component. And then on the, the useful side of it, there have been some police departments that have gone into the effort of trying to be as data-driven as possible on both their understanding crime and reflecting on themselves at the same time issue. And you run into some quick operational challenges when you do that, um, largely around the idea, and this would be true of any profession, but nobody wants some data analyst or data scientist behind closed doors doing a bunch of numbers that may not capture the context of what that person's doing out in the field. And so you have a tension between kind of like operations and analysis that exists in all of components of data science. It's not just law enforcement, but marketing and accounting. And they're, they're, this issue is, is ripe everywhere. So you end up getting the operational implementation of these things to be difficult. So we could probably learn a lot from this data but without it being publicly available, which would be a step, 
And then kind of the citizens of data science and data analysis taking that up to do good public work and kind of open data analysis on it, it may not go all that far. And that's kind of the bigger hurdle around these issues is, yeah, it'd be great for us to collect low-level incident-based data on all use of force, not just killings, but anytime the officer has to be physically interactive with someone. That would be phenomenal. But then what do we do with that? Are we going to use that to make metrics by which police officers are held accountable? Are we going to use that simply for a court reference whenever we charge an officer with a crime? Is it going to be made in a you know publicly available way where any of us, you and I, could query it and then put together some dashboards that are interesting for, for our purposes? Is it going to be vetted to make sure it's accurate? Those are all much harder questions that because they don't really get answered in conversations like these, the what could we do with this doesn't really come to fruition. Interesting. So one of the things that we were talking about a little bit right before we started recording, we we're talking about your your day job of sorts, which is working um, in your current role and some previous roles working in um, positions that are sort of in the government or adjacent to the government, the parts of the government that are working on topics like this. And one of the things you mentioned was how many opportunities you see there for putting more analytical rigor into the processes that these organizations are using to run their operations, to do their day-to-day. So it, what I think I'm hearing there is it, it sounds like that will, in order to be successful, requires either a team um, where that team has two important parts, the folks who understand what you described as the uh, the context in which the data was taken. These are folks who really understand how policing works, for example, um, but also the folks who have the data science and analytics background. I mean, you kind of have both. You're a little bit of a, a unicorn. <laughs> but, um, you know, for, for me, for example, if I were to be interested in this problem, I can, I'm handy with like Python and R. I don't know anything about criminology. So for me to write a metric here on top of a data set would almost certainly be missing some of that context. So um, I'm wondering if, if there's anything else that, that you think is going to be an important part of bringing some of that analytical rigor, you know, if, if that becomes part of the solution here. And I, I definitely hope it is, um, you know, if, if that is what you think is required for it to actually be successful in the long run. Yeah, that that blending of kind of like subject matter knowledge and analytic knowledge. And and I think we face that in data science in all fields, right? So like it, whether you're working in healthcare or whether you're working in, you know, marketing analytics, uh, there's a it's a fool's errand when we as data scientists run in, we're like, got the data, here's your analytics, here's your model, we're all good to go. You see that a lot, but that's 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 a real like, like you're you're jumping yourself off a cliff there really quickly. And I think so that's not a unique problem to the law enforcement issue. That's a unique problem to implementing data science anywhere. But it gets particularly hard in law enforcement for you know a variety of reasons. One, the reality is like really good data scientists in this market are expensive, and the government agencies and especially you know budget-strapped local governments can't always justify to pony up to to build a team of ten data scientists and pay market rate to get really good ones and get them in there and pay for all the technology it requires to get them set up like that's a long haul a lot of times right and and you know definitely and then on top of that can't really you know pay the consultants to do it because that's even more of a long haul when you bring in an outside analytics firm to do it that's even harder so that's a big 
burden in getting a lot of this stuff implemented is just how much it costs to stand up a really good scientific crime analysis unit and, how, and what it would take to do that. And then you reach the issue of like, how do you bring in the subject matter experts? Do you bring officers off the field who then work with these data scientists to do that? Do you work just at the management level? Do you work at the street level? Those are often two different stories in law enforcement where your your kind of more senior people see things very differently than your your street level officers. And again, not unique to law enforcement, but in this context just makes this harder. And so those issues make it to where, yes, I, I think you're spot on that that's the ideal team. But building that team in a local government just gets really hard really quickly. Last question. Um, I'm really curious. What are the things this is a hot topic right now. What are the things that you are watching for the most over, let's say, the coming weeks and months as some of this energy, raw energy, um, could potentially be turning into policy or might also just get stuck and stall out and lose some of the momentum? What are you going to be paying attention to? Yeah. Um, so for me particularly, uh, there's like seven policy messages going around right now of what people are asking for, right? You have cr groups who are like, let's just get rid of policing altogether. You have groups of let's defund and move the resources elsewhere. You've got groups who are advocating for more policing to solve the issue. And there's just, there's so many different components. I'm watching where, which one of those fizzle out and which one of those gain more momentum. So, like, is the is the abolished police movement going to fizzle out over the next few weeks? Or is that going to become a reoccurring theme in American politics uh, and American policy? Because that changes how we as scientists, the, the things we need to be studying. Because if that's going to be a, a – if getting rid of policing is going to be a, a new standard, strongly held theme through American policy discussions, then it falls back on us as criminologists – to be able to say, hey, like we need to un we need to really get into what the impacts of that would be, or what are some ways that we could replace policing with other policies, and would those even work? Uh, before city governments start just disbanding entire government agencies and replacing them with something else, um, and then you know, on the flip side, it it's also you know, if we ignore those, then it also kind of falls back on us as scientists to look at the policies that didn't get a lot of traction in the public eye, but maybe see if there's ways we can test them and bring them back up. Because sometimes things fall from the public eye because the public doesn't have the ability to push that forward in a way. It's like, here's the evidence. This actually might work. But as a scientific community, we sometimes can. So those are the things. That's, that's my main like when I'm watching Twitter right now, I'm kind of watching of like which hashtags are falling off and which ones are gaining more momentum around these policy discussions. It's going to be really interesting. Uh, Zach Drake, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Really appreciate you coming on. And uh, thank you. I learned a lot. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me.